that's beautiful. How many of you thought it was going to be a different version? Yeah, that was beautiful. I'd never heard that before until Dave played it for me the other day. How many of you remember the day when he took you in? Remember the day you came to faith in Christ? Every once in a while, in a moment like that, it just seems like it was yesterday. For me, it was a lot longer ago than yesterday. But it's just those moments when you recognize a song like that. He took me as I was and took me in and made me his own, called me his son, called you his daughter. Man, I hope you never, ever, ever forget that day. You have sermon notes in your bulletin. I encourage you to take them out. We're continuing our journey in the book of James. You're going to notice over the next few weeks, we're going to do some hit and miss in regards to certain sections. We're going to tie them in together as we did last week in the context of wisdom. How many of you know somebody in your life who no matter what kind of problems they face or what kind of trouble they're in, it's always someone else's fault? Anybody? A couple of you know somebody like that. And then when confronted with an issue, they always push the responsibility of the circumstance to someone else. How many of you in leadership or a boss would love for an employee to come to you and say, I'm really sorry? I didn't do my best. I could have done it better. Wouldn't you just love that every once in a while for somebody to come to you in leadership to say, it was my fault. I'm sorry. I'll do a better job. But most of the time, that doesn't happen. We push your responsibility onto someone else. We try to blame others for their mistakes or our mistakes and kind of don't want to really take the focus on ourselves. We're in a new section, but it's not independent of the others. So if you're in James, stay there, chapter 1. I'm going to begin at verse 2 because it all ties in together. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kind because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance has to finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Got to believe that Chris and Jenny want that little one to grow up and become mature and complete, right? So you want them to develop. God takes us through things to allow that to happen. Perseverance has to finish its work so that you'll be mature and complete. If you lack wisdom, as we talked last Sunday, ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to them. But when he asks, he's got to believe and not doubt. Because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man shouldn't think he receive anything from the Lord. Double-minded and unstable in all he does. Jump down to verse 12. If you missed last Sunday's message, please, I encourage you to go to butlercac.org and look at it again. Verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test to receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he's dragged away and enticed. Then after the desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my brothers. James makes a clear distinction between trials and temptation, especially in the NIV version. King James and NIV, or King James and the Living Bible, use the word temptation in the second verse. Going through trials, you're going through difficulty, facing any temptation, be happy. But the NIV, I think, translates it best when it says trials in the first part, 
Temptation in this section. In your notes, trials are something to be endured. Temptation is something to be avoided. And they're drastically different from one another. Now, there's an interesting paradox in that section of Scripture in that context. When James discussed the issue of trial and difficulty, we see and understand that it's so necessary to hold on to God no matter what. No matter how hard it gets, because in the end, he says in verse 12, it's worth it all. Hold steady. Stay the course. Don't give up. It will be worth it all. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who perseveres because when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He basically says the end product, eternal life, is worth the difficulty that we face to get there. Okay, you get that? The end product, eternal life, is worth all the difficulty we face to get there. The problem is the process to get life doesn't always feel like that, right? Sometimes it feels like death. How many times have you thought or maybe even said when you're going through really deep waters, I feel like I'm going to what? Die. The product of perseverance is life, but the process doesn't always feel like it. And Many of you know how that feels. But in verses 13 to 14, jump down, you'll see that the lack of perseverance also has a byproduct. And that really is death. That the lack of perseverance, the lack of willing to go through it, the lack of what I learn has an end product as well. When tempted, when I give in, when I don't hold on, when I don't trust God, when I find a, try to figure out myself, when tempted, no one should say God is doing it. God doesn't tempt by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But when you're tempted by your own evil desire, you're dragged away and enticed, and then after that's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it fully develops, gives birth to death. That's a tremendous flow in both of those sections. What's ironic sometimes is the process of sin sometimes feels life. Giving into temptation may feel good for a while, but James is extremely honest and lets us know the end product of giving into temptation is death. You can't miss that. James is a no-nonsense counselor. I love guys like James. Sometimes I want them to dance around things a little bit. But then every once in a while, you need a Dr. Phil in your life to say, buck up, face it, realize it, understand it, quit shifting the blame, quit blaming other people, take responsibility for where you're at, right? That's what James is doing. He tells us the truth, sees through all the smoke, gets in our face, and confronts us with the very core of the problem. Brendan Manning in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, in order to free the captive, you've got to name the captivity. Once you see it and honestly admit it and come humbly and broken before God in repentance, it's then we can find freedom in God's amazing grace. But you get none of that if you keep blaming everybody else. And some people do that all the time. It was mom's fault, dad's fault, that teacher, they just have it out for me. You see the way these girls dress? My wife doesn't pay attention to me. You don't understand. My husband doesn't show my love. My spouse doesn't help around the house. I need those pills to deal with the pain. I need that drink to calm my nerves. I just wanted to fit in, so I went along to get along. And now, to be honest with you, I'm in so deep, I don't know if I can get out. Now, maybe none of that applies to a single one of you in the room this morning. So take these notes, write them down, go to the Facebook, go to wherever you need to do, and say, hey, I've got a sermon you've got to listen to. Set them up well, 
Don't go to them and say, you rotten, lousy sinner, you've got to listen to this guy's sermon. But I've got to believe that every once in a while, one or two of us come in on a Sunday morning and need to hear James say to us, hey, look, you've got an issue I want to help you deal with. Because if not, I love you enough to tell you it's going to kill you. Now, there are a lot of times when it really is someone else's blame or problem for where you're at in your nose. But you can't control the behavior of other people no matter how much we wish we could. So if we don't deal with our own issue, we'll be forever the victim of someone else's actions. And we'll always be at the mercy of circumstances or how people treated us or how they treat us now. And to be honest with you, that is a hopeless way to live. The best hope is to accept responsibility for where we're at. Seek God's face. Seek his grace and forgiveness for ourselves when we sin. And not be so consumed with other people's problems. To honestly admit That when we're bitter or lazy or angry or addicted or unfaithful or gossiping or irresponsible, that we made a choice to be, regardless of the cause or who else's fault it may have been. I hear so many people down through the years who have been unfaithful or left their spouse because they didn't do this or didn't do that, who said this phrase, God wants me to be happy, right? No, he wants you to be faithful. And responsible for your behavior, actions, and decisions. That's why James is saying here, look, when you're tempted, don't say God did it. For he doesn't do that. He's not to blame. It's a little bit closer to home than you think. It's your own evil desire, verse 14. You're willing to listen to the lies. Now, the problem is old as time itself. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. The very beginning of the history of humanity and Genesis, Garden of Eden, God gave Adam and Eve everything they could possibly have with one restriction. Can you imagine going through life with only one restriction? I mean, as a kid or a teen growing up in your home, wouldn't it be cool if you only had one rule? You got one rule. Do anything else you want. Just, I got, only got one. Would that be awesome or what? One rule, one thing, don't do this, don't eat from that tree. Right in the middle of this incredible environment, Satan crawls in and said, hey, God's holding out on you. I'm fascinated by the lie. God's holding out. I got all of Eden, everything I could possibly have with one restriction. God's holding out on me, and they believe the lie. And right in the middle of all that, they believe the lie. They listened. They took and they acted. In this case, they ate. The desire in verse 15, after it's conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. And they face spiritual death and physical death. It wasn't possible up to that point. What's fascinating to me in this story is right in the middle of their sin and disobedience, God comes and pursues them. Adam, where are you? As if God didn't know. One of the thousand things I love about God is his constant pursuit of us. That's the good news. The bad news is giving into temptation has horrible consequences. God confronts their sin. They paid a horrible price. Look at their response. It was her who, by the way, God, you gave me. What audacity. And then he goes to Eve. Her response was the snake. I mean, that's as bad as the dog ate my homework. Wasn't me. Now, the purpose of blaming is to divert attention away from ourselves. 
Life is unfair. That cop had it out for me. The teacher expects too much. My wife or husband doesn't treat me right. That boss expects way too much of me. Everyone does it, right? You've lost six jobs and six years of a history of not being able to keep a job. Why? Persecuted for your faith. It's not your fault. They just don't get you, right? James would say, come on. Don't be deceived. You and I are responsible for our choices, behavior, and sin. Everyone, when they're tempted by their own evil desire, dragged away and enticed. Now, <clears throat> there are people who don't blame everyone else for everything they really do. They blame themselves. The problem is they blame themselves for everything. I'm really sorry about global warming, by the way. I shouldn't have had so many campfires. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm the... I got a master's degree in blaming myself for everyone. I'm so sorry Penn State lost last night. I prayed as hard as I possibly could because I do not like Ohio State. You know, the list. And you end up blaming yourself for everything. You, you ought to sit in my chair every once in a while. I'll look at stats. Attendance isn't what it was or used to be. Offerings aren't as good as they have been. People have left. I should have paid more attention. The money is tight. I should have preached more on stewardship. Anything that goes wrong here, I blame me. Now, I get it. The buck stops here, and I, boy, I'm telling you, I, 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 I understand that person who takes the responsibility for everything that goes wrong. But what I have to remember is I've got to be honest with myself and circumstances, do the work necessary to sort out what I'm responsible for and what I'm not responsible for. And you and I have to both do the same. It may take a lot of work. It may take a lot of help. It may take counseling. But you've got to work out what you're responsible for and what you're not if you're the kind of person that takes the blame for everything that goes wrong. If you don't do all of that, though, the alternative is to stay bound up forever. Now, the process of perseverance in verse 12 is painful, right? But the end result is life, not only in heaven, but now, in this life. Jesus said, I've come to give you life and I've come to give it to you abundantly. And that was not just eternal life. That's a great life now, walking with Jesus. Giving into temptation may seem like life at the time, but the end product is death. That is the honest truth, and you have to believe that. Because sin kills everything it touches. Hard words maybe, but maybe that could be your best friend. By giving in to sin, marriages get destroyed, relationships get shattered, dreams get broken, churches lose their effectiveness. James gets pretty intense in this text. He gets into our face and says, you may not be responsible for the actions of other people, but believe me, you and I are responsible for the actions that we have done or things we have done, so we've got to quit blaming ourselves, everyone else. We live in a culture, sadly, that doesn't take any responsibility for their actions. And we've got to figure out what does that imply to us. Now, we've got an interesting twist in the area of responsibility and, and kingdom values and the way Christians and non-Christians look at life. For many Christians, events are either a result of God's sovereignty or Satan and his demons. And for non-believers, it's either luck, fate, or the stars. Now, believe me, God is sovereign. And he can do anything he wants to do. And there are demons at work in the issues of life. Don't ever underestimate the sovereignty of God. Don't ever underestimate the power of Satan. God is alive and active. 
in the affairs of humanity. Satan is alive and active in an all-out effort to derail God's plan in your life. But what James is referring to here is that there are situations that I'm in or you're in, behavior that I'm displaying that is my own fault. In verses 14 to 15, James begins to flesh it out a little bit. Look at what he does. Each one then were tempted by their own evil desires, dragged away and enticed. After that, gives its desire birth to sin. Sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. In the context of sin, one thing leads to another in your notes. And James lays it out in a pretty simple form. In verse 14, dragged away or carried away, depending on what translation you're used, is a hunting term. It means to be led or compelled or to be lured in. Now, this may not relate to some of you here this morning, but if you've ever seen guys hunt bear over bait, I don't, I don't even think that's a great idea, but I, I've seen it a lot, Maine does a lot of other states where, you know, you, you saturate a lot of food with honey, and then you stand in a stand over that big barrel filled with food and honey, hoping the bear is going to show up so you can shoot him. He's going to show up. The problem with that is it doesn't seem to me as easy as what it should, or as difficult as what hunting should be to go after and look for. But that's the analogy he's using here. Uh, turkey season is coming up, and you, you've seen guys that, that can call turkeys, and essentially what they're doing is trying to lure that big hen in, or that big gobbler in. He thinks it's a hen, and you're making all those sounds, and he's coming further and further in. He doesn't know that you're sitting there with a 12-gauge shotgun with a three-and-a-half-inch magnet, magnum ready to blow his head off. You do know that's what turkey hunting is all about, right? That's how they get on your table at some point. Okay, well, not all the ones you buy in Giant Eagle, but, but you get the analogy of what he's using? He, he's trying to, to make them who understand what it's like to try to lure an animal in because they're not using rifles or 12-gauge shotguns. They're using bows and arrows and knives and sticks. So they got to get them as close as possible. So James, when he uses that term, they know what he's referring to because they understand what it's like to have to lure that animal in, try to be so deceptive that they don't know you're there to try to kill them. And you're usually not there to take them out to lunch. They're there to be lunch. Now, enticed is a fishing term that means to bait the hook. And each one, enticed is a fishing term, means to bait the hook. And each one means uniquely. It's in your notes. Look at that. Every one of us is uniquely tempted with a unique bait. Specific to our own particular vulnerability. Consistent with our own particular weakness. Your weakness is completely different than mine and vice versa. Now, you may have seen someone fall in an area, and you've said, how could they do that? They could be saying the same thing about you if you fall for something. Every single one of us has an area in our life where we're most particularly vulnerable to the enemy. James uses the fishing term because they understood it. He knows they all fish. One of the things that are the supplements to life. Now, if you fish, you know there are different kinds of bait depending on what kind of fish you want to catch. And you also need to remember that you're not out there to feed the fish. You're out there to catch the fish, right? So it's not a matter of them, I want to feed the fish, so I'm just going to throw in all the bait. You're out there to catch the fish, so you're using bait that they're going to be drawn to. It translates over into life, and they got that. 
Because there are things in life that every single one of us deal with and want. And that could be a fine thing. But if we're not careful, those things can so consume us that eventually it will destroy us if not under the power of God's Spirit. And every good fisherman or fisherwoman knows that on most occasions you've got to let the fish take the bait. You've got to let it take it out a while. And then all of a sudden when you know they're hooked, bam, you hook it in and you reel them in, right? It's exactly what the enemy does. It's exactly how sin works. Satan knows our weakness. He knows where we're most vulnerable. Incredibly keen observer of human nature. And he'll throw out in front of us what's vastly different than someone else. Could be certain possessions, could be women, could be alcohol, could be power, could be money, could be success. In the 70s and 80s, we were all about freedom when I grew up, and it felt good to do it. And so what? We did it all. And the results? Addiction. And by the 80s and 90s, it was rampant and out of control, and now everything seems out of control. For some, they stay away from all the bad stuff. Some are sitting here saying, I don't have trouble with alcohol. I don't have trouble with women. But using the fishing metaphor, you float a piece of gossip in front of their nose, and they are I'm just sharing this so you can pray for them. It's not what I'm saying. That's what they're saying with the gossip. And James would say, come on. They see your neighbor or a friend get something you don't have, and you're hooked. A decision has made it work that you don't agree with, and instead of getting all the facts, you throw people under the bus. Now, it's different for all of us. And knowing that should do at least a couple of things in your notes. It should keep me from looking at other people's flaws and thinking, well, I'd never do that. Be very careful, James says, and Jesus does, and the New Testament does on numerous occasions from being so self-righteous. Because that's their problem, and you'd never give in to that. But if you listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, you know already, if you're not careful, what you will give in to. Galatians 6.1, it's in your notes, and I think we even typed it out for you. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, because you too may fall. Philippians says the same thing. You be very careful that you don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think. Because you too could give in to a very similar situation and sin. I love Corinthians because it, he's almost rehearsing all of all of those mistakes. The Old Testament, one of the most dysfunctional families I've ever met and is people all over the Old Testament, isn't it? I mean, the Old Testament is filled with dysfunctional families. The list is endless. And what I love about all of that and God's honesty about all of that, I said to a friend the other day, if I was writing a family tree, there's a lot of people, about my family, there's a lot of people that wouldn't get on the page. What fascinates me about God, he's putting his story out there and all the nuts and the fruits and the berries are all there. (laughs) And then this is what he says in 1 Corinthians, these things happen to them as examples And were written down as warnings to us on whom the culmination of ages have come. Now we're in the New Testament age. So if you think you're standing, be very, very careful that you don't fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that it's common to all humanity. 
And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when tempted, he will also provide a way out. So take advantage of it. Now, the other thing it should do is help us to be very aware of our area, whatever that may be, uh, of vulnerability. That's why he said in verse 19, we'll talk about it next Sunday morning for a couple of weeks, actually two different sides of that. Take a real honest look at yourself. It may take a safe friend. It may take some counseling. Every single one of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, have a dark side. I've done a leadership teaching to missionaries and pastors and, and, and leadership. Every leadership gift has a dark side if we're not careful with it. You're good at communicating. That's awesome. That's a tremendously powerful communicative gift, gift from God. But you can use your ability to communicate to manipulate. So every leadership gift has a dark side if you're not careful. And all of us, no matter where we're at in life, got to be very careful. Every single one of us is uniquely tempted according to our own particular bent or desire. Don't buy the lie that it cannot happen to you. Satan knows our weakness, the area in which we're most vulnerable. And the flip side of that, don't buy the lie that since you have taken the bait and maybe paid the price, you can't get free because that, my friend, is a lie from the pit of hell. James describes the process well. If we don't deal with those specific areas and we let it remain, it will destroy if we attach our passions to things that were never designed to give us life, as we said last Monday, Sunday morning in communion, to the fact that Jesus is the one to give us life. If we attach our passions to things that were never designed to give us life, the problem will happen when we start, when the life starts going out of those things, and we'll always want more, something bigger and better, and it's never, ever enough. And we'll go after more and yet never satisfied. Look at verse 17. Because it ties in, every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights who doesn't change like shifting shadows. For believers in Christ and followers of God, the goal is not heaven. That's the destination. Which is a fascinating phrase. The goal is to be more and more like Christ. If, if you're in a small group or a Bible study or something trying to make you a better you... You, I, I want to be really honest, you, you may be in the wrong group or dealing with the wrong issue. The intent is to make you more and more like Christ. Now, that may sound like semantics, and I don't mean it to be. The intent of all Scripture, the goal of God in our lives, is that Christ be formed in us, that we become more and more and more like Jesus. Who was, by the way, as Scripture says, tempted in every single way like us who gets it who understands it who knows your weakness who knows where you're most vulnerable who wants to give you the strength beyond what you could have possibly imagined to come out the other side to not give in to not pay the price to always 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 provide a way out he says to do that we've got to honestly admit it and then we have to seek after it. Because if we don't admit it, admit it, we won't know what we're going after. My question to you this morning is, in a moment of time, David, the team is going to come out and sing a, a, a song called Come to the Altar. We've done it before. It's a powerful song. My heart's desire this morning for all of us, for me, for you, for every single one of us, 
is that you'll be really, really honest about areas in your life that you know you're most susceptible to giving into. Whatever that may be. It may be so far removed from what the norm may be if you look at somebody else's life or where they may have fallen or what you think people do or those outside the church, those us of us inside the church. We don't deal with that stuff. What is it for you, though? I know mine. I know where he hammers me with. I know what he hammers me on. The list is, is about this long. Self-esteem, I mean, it's just, I won't go into all of them, but I'm telling you, I know what they are. If you're here this morning and you'd really honestly like to deal with that, not just simply acknowledge it, but deal with that and come and talk to Jesus about that, we'd love for you to do that. I don't know where you grew up in church. We talk sometimes about an altar. I grew up, the church had an altar. It was a big wooden thing, a cross, and you came and knelt at that. It was a piece of wood. The Old Testament altar was a huge piece of stone on which they slayed an animal. Those altars that you grew up with, in most cases, were pieces of wood. They were symbolic of my opportunity to come and kneel before Almighty God and embrace Him as Savior, deal with my sin, whatever that may be. And you notice we don't have one that looks like that if that's where you grew up in church. The issue isn't that I come so that I have a piece of specific geographic location that I come to. It's just an honest admission that I come in front of my family and friends, in front of my church family, to Almighty God and say, I got, I got to have your help because I'm going, out, I'm going down a path that I know. Maybe you already knew it. Maybe at least this morning you see it. It's going to lead to death. Could destroy you, your family, your business, your home, your church, your marriage. Could cost you death. And you don't want to be there. And so as they sing this morning, I'd love for you, if you'd like to come and just by that physical getting up out of my seat and coming here, kneeling at the steps, kneeling at this place, wherever that may be, just to spend two or three minutes with Jesus. Because to be honest with you, when this service is over and you walk out the door and you see family and friends and people and talk and conversations and going home and lunch and all of that, you'll probably not be as ready or prepared to do that. And that's why in so many churches, in so many situations, they want you to take advantage of that moment because it's, it's right there, it's right now. And I'm not being distracted by anything else. Let me pray. God, I love your honesty. I love the fact that you don't let us try to figure this out ourselves. That's an incredible operator's manual to spiritual life. It's your word. And it's really honest about life. It's honest about death. And so God, as we, by the power of your spirit, I ask in the name of Christ and by the power of the spirit of the living God, that your spirit will invade this sanctuary right now and that we will hear your voice and yours alone and we'll be honestly able to deal with some issues that are going on in our life and seek your face. Maybe for some people, it's seek you as Savior, others as Redeemer, others as Healer, or others as Forgiver. As you hear them sing, they're going to sing probably a minute or two of it and then just going to play music. At any point during that time, you want to come and pray, love for you to do that. We'll pray with you. If you want to pray by yourself, that's fine. 
you don't need us, but you, you want somebody, we'd love to pray with you. To see beyond the moment and see what it is that is coming at us and understand all the resources you've given us so that we continue to become more and more like you and less and less like we used to be and be honestly able to deal with the issues that would pull us away. Thank you again, Father, for the honesty of your word. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We can pray for you in any way. We'd love to do that. Uh, I know Ken Gold, some others may want to be anointed this morning. We'd love to do that as well. Please let us know if we can. God bless you. Have an amazing day. Next week, again, you do not want to miss it uh, because of the power of that section that we'll share with. Have a great day.